First Peter chapter 2. This morning we'll read from verse 18 to 25. So we complete chapter 2 this morning. continue our, our series on growing in Christ and this morning's uh, title of this morning's message is who are you working for so who are you working for first Peter chapter 2 verse 18 let's read together servants be subject to your masters with all fear not only to the good and the gentle but also to the froward or forward for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience Towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own uh, self bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For ye were all as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls." Let's commit this time to the Lord. Father in heaven, once again we come before your throne as your children and we ask that you be with us now as we look into your word and we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide. Father, that you would use me for this purpose and use me as a tool in your hand, hiding me behind that cross is what I desire. And Father, our collective desire is that we would grow through this word and that once again we would grow stronger in the faith that we might... Uh, live more fully for you, that we might be a more perfect representation of your Son in this world, and that our lights would shine in the midst of this darkness. We thank you for this time once again, and for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We had the honour yesterday of attending a, 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 not an anniversary service, a celebration service for um, Pastor Ernie Vesley and Liz Vesley as they uh, finished up their ministry at Calvary Baptist Church. So Pastor Ernie was a pastor there for 29 years. So it's quite a long time to be in one particular job. And so, that was, so it, was a, it was a celebration of the, the work they had done over there. And there were many, many memories and testimonies of people who'd been blessed by their work and by their labour for the Lord. And what was evident through that particular service was the faithful work of two people who had said yes to a particular job that God had called them to do. And after almost 30 years, there were fruits of that particular labor which were evident everywhere. And people were saying, oh, because of the way they were, because of their faithfulness, I had an example to follow. Other people were saying, oh, because of a kind word or a, or a good teaching or good doctrine that they were, that they were sort of expounding on, um, because of them, my life has changed. Or I went from here to there because, you know, one conversation I had with pastor, you know, led me to think and realise that I was making a mistake and going the wrong way. There were plenty of examples like that in the congregation and from the congregation and even missionaries who had been touched by the, their support during the years. So after almost 30 years, it was the fruits of that ministry were evident. But also, what was also evident is that there would be a reward waiting for them in heaven. You know, and, and during that time yesterday at Calvary, I was reminded of the actual sermon that I was preaching on today. Because today's sermon is about work. It's about labour. In the book of Ruth, this, uh, this particular verse was mentioned during that service. And in the book of Ruth, Boaz uh, gives one of the nicest blessings to Ruth for what she had done for her mother-in-law. So if you can turn back with me there, I'd like to read that together. So it's Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. 
Because this is the foundation of what I'd like us to think about while we are looking at or going through these verses today in this passage from Peter. Ruth chapter 2 verse 12 says, and this is Boaz speaking, The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Now that's, Boaz is basically saying, I hope God pays you fully for what you have done. And, and he says it in a very nice way. You know, sometimes you can take it in a negative way. But he's, he's saying this in a very, very positive way. And the truth is that for everyone who was put their trust in God and is resting under his wings. It's a beautiful picture of a, you know, a, a baby bird that rests under the, the mother's wing. We all, all of us, who have put our faith in Christ, are resting under his wings. There is protection there, there's peace there, there's safety there. And so all those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ as their saviour are resting under his wings. And the truth is that for all those who work for the Lord, whatever it is that we do in our lives, that work will be rewarded by the Lord. It will be rewarded and there will be a a full recompense, which means we'll be paid for the things that we do and a full reward will be given by the God of Israel to everyone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ as Saviour. Today we speak about work. (coughs) Work. For some, work is a bad word, a nasty word. You shouldn't mention it too often. Because it's something to be it's something to be avoided at all costs. For others, work means stress. When you speak about work, you think about stress and pressure and a place of torment and strain. Yet for others, work is a means to fame or riches or success. But what is work? Because just as everything that we, we know about life is often distorted in the world. So whether it's the family or whether it's uh, church or whether it's whatever it is, the world has a funny way of actually distorting and twisting whatever God has created to be good to make it something that it's not. And today I'd like us to clarify what work is in God's eyes because he's the one who created work, believe it or not. He's the first worker. Because when you put the universe together, when he spoke it into existence, he worked. And the Bible says that he worked because he says he worked for six days. So he worked for six full days and he took a rest on the seventh. And that's where we get our system of seven days with a rest on that last day. And that last day becomes a, a dedication to him. So let's begin with a definition. Man was created to work. Are you happy with that? Some of you aren't happy. You're not smiling. Man was created for work. We were not created to sleep all the time. We were not created to be lazy or slothful. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2 as we begin right at the very beginning about where we find work. So this is the first place that work is mentioned outside of God himself. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Okay, so he took the man and put him in the garden. For those of you who haven't quite cottoned on to something, he wasn't created in the garden. He was created out of the garden. Okay, so... God planted a garden with, with a, a fence or a wall around it, and we know that it actually had a gate to get into it. So it was a special garden that was created by God. It wasn't like the whole world was a garden. It wasn't. The whole world was lush and green, and we know that there were a lot more animals there were to, than there were today. We know that, the, that there were... Um, dinosaurs and those sorts of things that we don't see today because they all died out or most of them died out after the flood. So what God did was, was planted a perfect garden 
He creates man outside the garden. He, he picks him up and he puts him in the garden. He says, see this garden I've planted for you. I want you to dress it and to keep it. Now, what does dressing and keeping mean? I mean, we don't use those terms that often these days. But he was called to dress and to keep the garden. Essentially, he was asked to work the garden, okay, as you would a normal, as a normal gardener, and to protect it and to sustain it and make sure it was growing the right way. So that was, that was the first time that God asked man to work. So it wasn't a strenuous type of work. It, it, was, it was actually a very rewarding type of work. Ever been in a position where you feel like you have a ton of energy? Ever felt like that before? And you've just got to do something. And when you do, and as you're doing something and, and you're, you're working, you're getting a whole lot of satisfaction from that. If you've been in that position, I hope you have. I hope it's very common for you. Often these days, people just tend to be lethargic all the time. You know what I mean? And it's the struggle to get out of bed. But work in the garden would have been that type of work where they had so much energy that they had, they had to expend it and there was a great reward from doing it. They weren't puffed out. They weren't worn out by the end of the day. They weren't stressed about their work. There was no pressure, in essence, because they just got a lot of satisfaction and enjoyment from it. It's a bit like creating something and then you see the, the, the work of your hands. It would have been like that all the time. So work in the garden was not meant to be stressful or a strain. It was meant to be an exertion, but it was meant to be a rewarding one. But something happened. They messed up. The Bible says they fell and they sinned and they ate of the tree they weren't meant to be eating from. And after that, work changed a little bit. So turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. Turn forward another chapter. And it looks as if work stopped becoming that rewarding and that um, pleasurable. It says in verse chapter 3, verse 18, the result of man's sin was that thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field in the sweat of thy face. Shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Well, that's a, that's a bit of a change, isn't it? They had they still had the same job, was to tend the actual ground, but they were no longer tending the perfect garden that God had created. They had to go out there and essentially um, subdue the world and create their own garden. God had already planted the garden for them. It's easy when you take something from someone else and you're maintaining it. But when you have to create that thing from scratch in a very harsh environment, which they would be in now, where death was around and thorns and thistles, and they would struggle to actually get the result that they wanted. It meant that work changed in essence. Work became more necessary than before. Whereas before they were working and, and seeing the fruits of their labor, this time if they weren't working, they weren't eating. So all of a sudden you raise the stress level up a little bit more. The, the work that was originally planned was different to the work that they ended up uh, inheriting after the fall. And the Lord God said that they had to essentially subdue the world that was now tainted with sin and with death. Okay, so we've got the change of that picture and the, the work that the world has endured for the last 6,000 years has essentially not changed that much. So God gave a number of special commands to people to make sure that they didn't abuse it and that they understood it properly. So turn to Exodus chapter 23 with me as we see some of the commands, there's a couple of the commands of God about what his instructions were to people about work. Exodus chapter 23 verse 12. It says there's six days 
thou shalt do thy work, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest, that thine ox and thine ass may rest, and the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. So God knew that there were limitations to how much one, a man or anyone or a woman, can work. He knew that if they continued seven days a week of work, that they would eventually wear themselves down and they needed refreshing on that seventh day. God didn't rest, sorry, God didn't rest on the seventh day because he got tired. Okay? He didn't wear himself out. But he did that in order for us to understand that there are seven days which we have and that last day was meant to be a day of rest for us because it was beneficial for us but also that we would use that day to think about him and to remember him in our lives. So there are two specific reasons. So God says essentially that we have limits to how much we can work. You cannot work all the time. And God basically said that you need to rest on the seventh day. Actually, in, in, if you think about it, with our culture today, you know how we're so advanced, right? When do we stop working? Because I find that, that we don't generally, and the younger ones, are, I'm not including you at the moment, but you know when you have a family, right? Tell me which day you take off completely. Which of us actually take a whole day off and don't do any labour at all? I'd find it surprising if any of us took a whole day off on a particular day of the week. I'd find it surprising that while you're working, you're not doing something else, if you understand what I'm saying. So women, you're not, wash, you're not doing a load of washing. You're not washing dishes. You're not doing other things and trying to catch up with other stuff along the way. We tend to disobey this command as a general rule. And our lives, which have been uh, surrounded by all these wonderful machines that are meant to make our lives a whole lot more simple, for some reason, we're getting more and more busy. And when we learn to do this thing called multitasking, where apparently we can do two or three jobs at the same time. I don't know if those, you understand what multitasking is. It's, you're able to do something else while you're doing things. So I get a great deal of satisfaction when my wife leaves the house and she dreads it when she goes out and I get in this working mood, right? And I decide to start washing clothes and doing this and doing that. And she, she's very fearful. So the first, thing, the, the first thing she asks when she comes back after I've been you know, turned loose in the house for a while, because I love the feeling of a washing machine going at the same time as a dishwasher's going, as, all, as, as something in the oven. I'm doing five things at the same time. It's a wonderful feeling. But then I end up putting the wrong things together in the washing machine and... Anyway, so the first thing Miriam says when she comes back is, what have you done? <laughs> but I was having such a good time. <laughs> so basically God says the problem with our society is that we are always on the alert, always doing stuff. I mean, uh, who's got one of these things? No, you're not even putting your hands up. Look at them. Look, they're scared to put their hand up. Now let me ask you a question. Which day do you turn this off so that you're not receiving messages and answering uh, your, your emails and messages and all that sort of stuff? That's what it means to rest, that you actually rest. We're not actually always on the alert, doing something. The problem is that we probably tend to, we're, tend to, we're probably damaging ourselves, that we don't give our minds a chance just to rest as well. And God says we are to devote one day to him a week, and that hasn't changed. Okay, turn with me. To Proverbs chapter 18, verse 9. We'll just look at one more verse before we get into this particular passage today. Ex, uh, sorry, Proverbs chapter 18, Okay, so Proverbs 18.9 says, He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. 
he that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. So he that is not working properly is almost the same as, he calls it here a brother, someone who just consumes everything and doesn't produce anything, who lives off other people, who consumes their labour and their efforts. So someone who is a bad worker, you can call him a freeloader. Okay, it's probably it's probably the, uh, the 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 closest analogy to the whole thing. Someone who's just freeloading off everyone else. So there's an expectation here that when we work, we're to work diligently. We're actually to work that in a way that produces something. That there's a net benefit to us working. We're not working for nothing. We are working to produce something. And be a benefit, not just to ourselves, but to other people. And God likens bad work to laziness and essentially destruction. So God still expects good work from us. Regardless of whether we live in a fallen world, or whether we're in a perfect environment, God expects work from us, and even more so in our day, because if you don't work, you don't eat. Work is necessary. It's ordained of God, and God said that work is good. And therefore, we are to do it well, and to do it within the boundaries that he set for us. So in the middle of this, this whole idea about work, okay, so the Bible says God says work is good, so it's good to work. And he says when you work, do it with all of your might. Do it with the best of your ability. In the middle of this now, we look at this passage, and this passage says there's another element that's been brought into it. That in this world that we, that we work, most of the time we are not working for ourselves, we're working for someone else. So all of a sudden now there's a new element in this thing. We're not just tending our own garden and eating the fruits of our own labour. So we're, so we're directly responsible to ourselves. What is happening in most of the world is that, and from those days, is that they became masters. People who became the ones who directed other people to work. And especially when cities were being formed, that's exactly what happened. That people who were entrepreneurial, people who were very intelligent, would use the system to, to create their own wealth, who realised, oh wow, you know something, if I've got a piece of land and I'll work that land, I'll get this much in my life. I'll get this much return because a piece of land will, will generate... Only so much return. But if I have five pieces of that land and I know I can't work five pieces of land, I can only work one. But what about if I put four other people to work that land and then they were able to produce the same amount as I did, but I took a bit off each of those. And I would direct them and tell them exactly what to do but with a coordinated effort, we can produce a whole lot more and I'm left with more at the end. So my pie then becomes bigger because I'm taking the risk to actually grow this thing and manage it. So this is the way masters, and the Bible calls them masters or, or lords or bosses as we, as we know today, that's why we're in this particular situation. So in the midst of work, we have people who are directing other people. They're directing traffic. And most people in the world work to receive a wage. They're getting a wage from someone else. They're not generating their own wage. They're getting a wage from somebody else. Okay, So let's have a look and see what the Bible has to say about working for someone else. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. It says there, servants. Now think of this, the word servants, purely as an employee. Okay? As someone who is working for someone else. Don't need, to, don't need to make it too complicated. Servants, be subject to your masters, or in other words, your bosses, with all fear. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. In the Roman times, okay, when, um, in the, the, during the Roman Empire, during um, 
which this particular letter was written by Peter, in which days they lived. The majority of people, or the, or the vast number of people in the Roman Empire were slaves. The Roman Empire was built upon slavery. Okay? They would subdue people, they'd get them in, and those people would be employed by Roman families okay, as slaves to them or servants to them. Okay? So they had, in many cases, not the freedoms that we enjoy today. The majority of people in the Roman Empire were servants or slaves. Some had their freedom, so they were treated with some more respect. Some had no freedom at all. Some were trying to work to gain their freedom so they could become citizens themselves. They were trying to earn their freedom. Some of the masters who were in charge of their slaves or servants were good. Some were not so good and some were absolutely terrible to work for. Actually, the work that we're used to today... The work that we enjoy in this particular culture in the 21st century is not the overwhelming type of work that the rest of the world has enjoyed for the last 6,000 years. We are only in a very, very small minority. In fact, the things that we consider ourselves here in the West to be standard, things like career paths, are things we think about. What's my career path? What career do I choose? How do I best fulfill my, my specific gifts and talents that I have? Things like, what's my, the best investment of my time? What about self-fulfillment? What do I get satisfaction from doing? What about remuneration? What about the pay and the, and the, the perks that go with, go with the job? See, we're all thinking about those things when we go looking for jobs these, day, these days. These are not the things at all that the majority of the world has even had the even pleasure to even think about at all. They, had, they didn't have any of those things most of the time. It was more along the lines of, if I don't find work today, I may not live till tomorrow. Most of the world has been in a similar situation than that. There's a particular story that I shared with a gentleman yesterday when we had our breakfast, and it was John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9... It says that there was a man who was born blind, who was begging in the streets. And when Jesus came to him and he healed him, okay, he recovered his sight and then they brought him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said, well, who healed you? And, they, and he said, I don't know, a man called Jesus healed me. And they go, well, how did he heal? He goes, oh, I don't know. He, he, he put some spit in some, in some dirt. He rubbed it in my eyes, told him to go wash and I, was, and I, was, I could see. And then they asked him again and again, and he sort of said, well, what do, you, what do you keep asking the same questions for? Do you want to be his disciples? And they said, go away, you're a sinner. And then at one stage, they brought his parents in there, all right? His parents. And they said, tell us how your son got his sight again. And they said, first of all, is, is this your son? And they go, he's our son. And they go, well, how did he get his sight back again? And they go, we don't know, ask him, he's old enough. They didn't want to get involved because they were scared. Because if, if they had said that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, they would have been booted out of the temple. That means their whole life would have been changed forever. So they said, ask him. The funny thing, the thing we, 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 that we asked ourselves in that particular instance is his parents were alive and he's blind. And what's he doing? He's begging in the streets. Now, which of us today, as parents, would be happy for our son or our child who is blind to be begging in the streets? Would there be anyone who would be happy with that situation? The differences between today and then is that if he couldn't produce any income, he would not be able to eat. There wasn't enough food generated for them. So the only thing he could do to generate an income which would help his family feed themselves was if he begged. He couldn't do any menu, he couldn't do any work or labor. For most of the history of this world, people had little scope to go changing their jobs or choose career paths. They were either forced to work in their parents' business. So if your father was a, a shoemaker, 
and you were born in that family, guess what you'd be doing? You'd be a shoemaker. In fact, look at most of the names that people have. If you're called Smith, guess what your ancestors were? A blacksmith. Because you were named after what your profession was. And normally that profession would continue all down the line. And if you had a plot of land, if you were lucky enough to own a farm and your, your parents grew apples or whatever it is, guess what you'd be doing? You'd be working in your parents' farm and you one day inherit that farm and continue the same work. You'd be an apple smith. Sorry? Orchard. Orchard. The truth of the matter is that most of the people in the world over the last 6,000 years haven't had a choice in what they could do or what they would do. Their main priority was, I have to work unless I eat, unless I won't eat. I want to show you something. Okay, you got a picture there? Okay. So there, that's a man. This is today. That's a man uh, with a plowing a field. So the, this is probably one of the most common things that have happened over the last, I don't know how many thousands of years, where you have a beast of what's called burden. And you put a, 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 a yoke on its neck. It's got a, a piece of wood essentially around its neck. It pulls, so it digs up the ground. And look at that, that guy at the front there. Do you know how old you reckon he is? He's about 10 or 12. Okay? So he's working in his dad's business. That's today. He's not at school. He's working at the moment. Okay? Let me show you some other interesting pictures. That's a girl in India. And she's, she's uh, weaving a rug or a scarf. And that's what she does... 12 hours a day, today. That child is actually working in a, in a, a mining area. Okay. These were children during the Industrial Revolution who worked in mines. Nine years old. And they were sent down the mines because they were small and they could get into holes. But imagine if you were the parent of that child and every morning your son or daughter had to go out from an early age and work in a mine and you wouldn't know whether they got back alive each day because there would have been tons of accidents and they, they may not have actually gotten back. That's, uh, that was very common during what we call the Industrial Revolution. More children digging in mines. These were children who started work at 6 a.m. in the morning um, at a particular, particular shop. So, let me tell you something interesting. In uh, 1856, okay, so, hang on a second, the system of laws on child labour were passed in the UK in the 19th century. Look at this. A law was passed in the 19th century that children younger than nine were not allowed to work. Right? So before that, children younger than nine were working. And those aged nine to 16 could only work up to 16 hours a day. 
That was a law that was passed in 1901. That children were not allowed to be used for labour more than 16 hours a day. In 1856, the law permitted child labour past the age of nine for 60 hours a week, night or day. And in 1901, the permissible child labour age was raised to 12. So up to 1901, they were working children in mines and everywhere else for jobs that we would never, ever consider that we would send our children to today. Never. Because we want our children to have the best. You know why a lot of immigrants come to places like Australia? Because they don't want their children having to work. They want their children growing up and going to school and, and being children, rather than from nine years of age actually having to work fields and, and ploughing and, and working in mines and such, because we live in the very, very wealthy top 10% of the world. Interestingly enough, child labour has reduced in the world from over 20% of the, the, the world's labour force to 10%, from 1960 to 2000. So in a period of about 40 to 50 years, children used to... So 50 years ago, children represented 20% of the, work, of the workforce in the entire world, children. That's dropped to about 10%. But it still represents 400 million children today that are working full-time, and when I say full-time, I'm not talking 40 hours, I'm talking many more hours than that. That's still happening today. And my point is not, my point's not to discuss labour laws or children. What my point is, by showing you that, is that much of the world as we know it, over all these 6,000 years, is not what we live today. We live in a very, very privileged and special time in this world. When I say special, I'm, I'm not saying, I don't mean special as in um, that this is the right time, because what always happens with man is that the, the easier they have it, the more they turn away from God. When things are really tough, they turn to God. When things are, like in our culture, so good, because we have it really, really good, um, people just throw away the whole notion of God because we've got it made. My point is not to discuss child labour laws, but to de demonstrate that only until recently the majority of the world, and still the majority of the world, has no choice where they work. They're actually forced to work. So in this environment, and not just in our sanitised environment, the scriptures tell us, in verse 18, subjects, uh, servants... Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. So imagine in a situation where you don't have a choice at all about what you do in your life, and the boss you have, maybe the only boss you could get, but that person turns out to be the nastiest person you can imagine. In that environment, Peter says, be subject to your masters, fear them. And, and do what's good, not just to the ones that are actually nice to you, but the ones that are actually bad to you. It says, for this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if he be buffeted for your faults, he shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. Servants are called to be subject to their masters with all fear. Now that means having a very, very healthy respect for them. That means being obedient to bosses who are good and gentle and also obedient to bosses who are terrible. And that word froward literally means crooked, a crooked boss. Okay? Someone who is nasty or unjust. So being a good employee is true, is meant to be true of the Christian in every case you can imagine. Doesn't matter where we are, where we work, we are called to be good workers. Being a good employee is true and should be true in every case in our lives, wherever we work. So it then says, if you look at that passage, it then says it's okay for God's sake 
because we want to do well, that we endure hardship wrongfully, and that while there is no reward for being told off for the things that you do wrong, because Peter says, what glory is it if you do the wrong thing, if you steal something, or if you don't work, or if, you, or if you're disrespectful, Peter says, well, what glory is it, what reward is there in that if you get told off for something you did wrong? Well, no reward in it. But he goes, but if you do the right thing, and you're still told off, if you're still mistreated, Peter says there's a reward. There's glory in it. And the element, for God's sake, makes all the difference. For God's sake. Because he says, for conscience sake toward God. That makes all the difference with the way we're meant to work. And here in this notion that we see somehow we're thinking about God when we do the work. That somehow, in the midst of our, 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 our work, our efforts, our strain, and everything that goes along with work, somehow God is in our mind, not just that piece of work in front of us. When we're doing earthly work, it's God who we have in mind. You know why? Because we believe it's God who sees what we do. It's him who sees it, not the boss but it's him who sees the work we do on this earth and he's always the one who's ready to reward and he always rewards righteously. So even if our earthly bosses, our earthly masters are nasty and don't reward us the right way, the Bible says that, you know something, God was always looking out for you. He always sees what we do and he always rewards the right way. So whether I'm working, you get this? So whether I'm working for whoever boss, which, whichever boss it is, if I work well, okay, my belief is that God will reward what I do, regardless of what I'm doing. And you could be doing anything, anything. There's no difference. You don't have to be a pastor of a church or someone in a, in a position of, of authority in, in, in religion or whatever it is. You can be doing literally anything and God's watching what you do and will reward what you do if you have faith and trust in him. Let's see if some other scripture passages, passages uh, support this notion. Go to Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Titus 2 verse 9 says, Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. This passage agrees perfectly with Peter and basically is saying the same thing. Be obedient and seek to please them who are in authority over you. That's, that's your, your earthly bosses. And it says, don't answer them back. So if they speak to you harshly, if they tell you off, it says, don't just answer them back and say and respond in kind. It says, you don't answer back. You don't retaliate. And it says that you do that, that they may adorn that the fruit of what we do because we believe in the doctrine of Jesus Christ, but because we're doing it for Jesus' sake, actually becomes a blessing to them. And they're able to adorn the doctrine of Christ. Even when they do something wrong against us, the Bible says that they're almost, they're almost magnifying God's doctrine, the doctrine of Christ. Because even when they do something wrong, God is glorified through it in us when we respond the right way. Once again, we see in this passage that God becomes the focus of our obedience, our faith, and our efforts. It's not necessarily the boss, but it's God who is my, who's my boss. Go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 says, Servants, once again, he says the same thing. Be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of 
Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall, uh, same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond, which means a slave, or free. And ye masters, do the same thing unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Now this, this opens it up even a little bit more. This tells us that when we do something for our earthly masters or bosses or whoever they may be that's in authority over us, we are to consider that we're not even doing it for them. We are doing it for Jesus Christ. We're doing it for him. And because we serve a perfect boss, because he's our perfect master, we have every confidence that he will reward us justly and rightly. We're not doing it to men. We're doing it to God. Regardless of whether you are at the moment, regardless of whether you're working in a job that you don't necessarily like or, or, or dislike or, um, or you may be working for a boss who's not the, the right type of person and he's not, he's not nice to you or whatever, regardless of whether you're going to school and you find it a drudgery or, you find, or you're, you're doing whatever you do, the Bible says, do it as if you're doing it for Jesus. And that makes a world of difference to us. The reason is because even though your boss may not give you what you deserve, Jesus always will. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 with me. We'll look at one more passage before we go to the next section. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look what Paul says here. He repeats it again. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their, master, their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed, and that they, ha and, and they that have believing masters or believing, believing bosses, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. Now look what Paul says if you don't. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Wherever you find yourself, the same passage repeats, this passage repeats again the same message. Wherever you find yourself, you can find fulfilment in what you do. When you truly believe that you're doing it for the Lord. You can find fulfilment in what you do. The scriptures are perfectly consistent with how we are to behave. Regardless of what type of job we have. What type of boss we have. What type of environment we're working in. It applies perfectly to every work situation. And is independent of whatever culture we're in. How? Because ultimately we are working for someone who is our direct boss. You remember, we are not citizens of this world anymore. Do you remember that? Only a few, a few sermons ago. We're not citizens of this world. Whatever we do in this world, we're doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we work, whether we don't work, whether we have a family, whether we're in ministry, whatever we do, if we do it for the Lord, that's the purpose of our lives now. These bosses on the earth are not our direct masters, but only a temporary intermediate position that sort of sit between Jesus and us because he allows them to be our bosses and because through whatever position it is whether we are under the authority of a government he tells us to submit whether we are under the authority of our parents he tells us to submit whether you're under the authority of a pastor he tells you to submit whether you're under the authority of a boss he tells us to submit 
Whether you're, a, whether you're a wife under the authority of your husband, he tells you to submit. Whether you're children under the authority of your parents, he tells you to submit. Guess what God likes? Submission. He likes us to learn to submit. And in the end, you know that's actually what we're doing. He's teaching us how to submit. Because if we can't submit, if we can't recognise someone who's over us, who has authority over us, and we can't learn to submit to our earthly structures, how on earth will we ever learn to submit to him? Think about that for a moment. Children, if you can't submit to your parents, how? What makes you think you can submit to Jesus Christ? If you can't submit to the authorities in the world who God says that he's instituted and ordained, how are you th- actually, what makes you think you're submitting to him? God actually is teaching us through every trial and tribulation. Remember, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. So regardless of what circumstance we find ourselves in, if God says, I've put you in this position for this particular time, and it may only be temporary, it may be for a long time, but whatever position we're in, if we're doing it for the Lord, we need to understand that he's teaching us from our position to learn to obey him. These roles that we live in in this particular world can only really be defined in terms of God's wanting to actually help us to grow in Jesus Christ. If we can't obey earthly masters who we can see and hear every day, how can we really obey God whom we can't see and we can't hear? And the same is true for love and faithfulness and every other virtue that we're called to. Everything else that God calls us to, he's giving us an opportunity to learn here. You have a difficult person you can't get along with and somehow they're just there. What do you think God is trying to do with that? Don't you think he's trying to teach you something? Every difficult circumstances that you and I face in life whether it's in the church, in our families, at work, whatever it is, he can teach us something very, very valuable. And he is. He always is. Because God is not just a heavenly father. He's a wonderful teacher and he's a wonderful boss. And he wants us to grow and mature. Everything here. If you look at your life and you look at every circumstance in your life and see that as an opportunity to learn, to love, to serve and to grow in Jesus more, your life will take a completely different role. Your life will take a different perspective. Believe me, it will. You won't be pushed around. You won't be up and down like a yo-yo with your emotions whenever whenever something small goes wrong or something that you think is big goes wrong in your life. If you're stuck in a culture where you can't change your work, Or your boss, when you work diligently and faithfully, remember that you're working for Jesus anyway. And if you have the opportunity to move roles, as we have in this country, which we have amazing freedoms, it doesn't mean you have to be stuck in the same situation forever either. It doesn't mean that you don't change. Just because it says um, that you work diligently and you obey your, your earthly masters, it doesn't mean I've got to work for the same boss forever. But it means that whoever I'm working for, for however long I'm working for, I'm meant to work very, very well, as if I'm working for Jesus. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And why do we do it like this? It's because Jesus is our example. Look what it says. For even hereunto you were called, because Jesus also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Jesus was not only on a mission, but he was doing a job. He was here working. And it says that he took on the form of a servant. 
He humbled himself under the hand of God the Father and became a servant and he worked in his father's business from a very young age. When his earthly parents could not find him for three days in the temple. Do you remember that passage? It says that they looked for him for three days and they couldn't find him. So they went back to the temple and they started looking and he was there. He was actually asking questions and responding to the teachers and they were amazed with the type of answers and questions that he was asking. And then when they, when they, when they got to him, it says in Luke 2.48, it says, And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us this way? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. They were crying. They were, they were in distress because they couldn't see him for three days. And his response to them was actually telling, he says, How is it that you sought me? Why were you looking for me? Wished you not that I must be about my father's business? Don't you know? I'm, I'm here to do my father's job. My, I'm, I'm in my father's business here. He was subject to his heavenly father. He took the, the, the lower position and he became, the Bible says, a servant. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He is now our perfect example of how we had to live our lives. Of how to work. Even when the people that we are subjected to, even the people that we are under, aren't nice at all. Because he never answered back to anyone. If someone hit him, he never hit back. The Bible says that he only ever was the perfect gentleman in every possible way. That's why Peter chapter 2 verse 23 says, Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. But he, what did he do? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who was he working for? God the Father. He committed his life and believed that God the Father would judge righteously in the end. So even though he was being robbed and he was being mistreated, and even though they led him all the way to a cross, he trusted God the Father's judgment. There was a whole lot of trust there. In order to demonstrate how much of a servant he became, the Bible says that he even took it upon himself to wash his disciples' feet, to show them, if I, your master, am washing your feet, this is how you are to be with one another. And he tells them, he repeats to them, but it shall not be so among you like the, like the world. He says, but whosoever will, be greater, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. You know what a minister is? A servant. Whoever's going to be the greatest among you guys, you know who he's going to be? He's going to be the one who serves the most. The one who serves everyone else. That's, the, that's what I want you to put in place. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered or served, ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now the moral of the story is this, that if the, the king, that God Almighty, can step off a throne and humble himself under us, under evil, sinful men, and endure it, and commit his life to God the Father and say, God, whatever I go through, I trust your judgment in the end. How much do we have to submit out? How much do we have to lower ourselves? He came all the way from heaven to earth to subject himself to man. What about us? If God the Father allowed his son to subject himself unto earthly governments like Rome, unto earthly parents like Mary and Joseph, and under mankind who he came to save, who in the end actually killed him. Mankind was a very, very bad boss. 
What excuse do we have not to subject ourselves? What excuse do we have not to commit our lives to Jesus Christ and trust him with our lives? What reason do we have to be upset with our lives and to complain and murmur when things don't go our way? When the boss might not say something bad against you or or people might mistreat you or your family might not look at you the right way or someone doesn't say good morning to you in the right way or someone doesn't look at you the right way or someone doesn't give you what you think you deserve. What reason do we have to be upset? Not much. Not much when you look at what Jesus went through. And it finishes with this. For we were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of our souls, of your souls. The the real question here is, if the world gets you down, and your work gets you down, your boss gets you down, the, the, the circumstances of your life get you down, the question is, how much are you trusting Jesus? How much do you trust him? Because if you trusted him fully, and you know this in your heart of hearts, if I trust Jesus fully with everything in my life, and I trust his word, and his word says, doesn't matter what is done to me, he sees everything that I do and he'll reward me. Then what reason do I have to be upset or downcast or, or, or fearful of the future? If he is with us, is there is nothing that can come against us. Jesus is the ultimate worker himself and he cares for the work that he does. And you know something? Where is work? He is the perfect worker and he hasn't stopped. And you know where he puts all his effort into now? You and me. He's putting all his effort into us to shape us, to mould us, to help us to grow so that the Bible says that one day he's going to present us to himself a glorious bride without spot and without blemish. He's working. He worked, the Bible says, to bring us back to himself because it says that we were sheep as going astray and it says that we're now returned. If he did all that work, dying on the cross, shedding his blood, and rising again on the third day to win us back to himself. Let me ask you a question. Do you think he's going to stop working to keep you once he's got you? Do you think he's going to lose you? No chance. He's still working, the Bible says, because he is the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. Do you remember the job that Adam had? He had a job to do what? Dress and to keep. Jesus is the shepherd and the bishop. You know what those two things are? The same thing. It's almost the same thing. A bishop is the overseer, the protector of. A shepherd is the one who works and nurtures. Jesus is the same with us as Adam was called to to do in the garden. We are his gardens. Our lives are the new gardens that he's created. And the Bible says that he's working in our lives, removing weeds, pruning trees, making sure that the the trees produce enough fruit. The Bible says that he is the one who is working in our lives. The Bible says that we've been freed from sin. So let me recap and let me close. What we do in our lives for whoever it is, is a reflection of the work we do for Jesus Christ. Is that clear? We are called to work the works of God, just as Jesus worked the works of his Father. Sometimes we think that there are things we do that might be eternal and the things that we do that aren't eternal. We might think to ourselves, you know something, if I clean these chairs over here, that's not an eternal thing. That doesn't really have much significance in eternity. And there are other things that I do. If I share the gospel of someone, that's an eternal thing. Yes, that's an eternal thing. But you know something? Cleaning a chair is eternal to God as well. Don't separate in your lives the religious and the non-religious. Don't think that the work you do at home with your children, with your families, with, with the work you do at work, that God doesn't see that. Because even the most what we think is the most menial task, God notices. And if we do it to him and for him, He rewards it.
Don't separate your lives into the religious and the non-religious because everything we do in our lives is eternal in one way or another. Even the daily work we do for our earthly bosses because our big boss, the good one, sees everything that we do. And remember, Jesus hasn't stopped working. Jesus said, we spoke yesterday in the men's breakfast, Jesus said that he was the light of the world. But the Bible says that we are the light of the world. And you know why? Because he continues to work in us. The feet that Jesus walked with on the earth are now your feet and my feet. The hands that he used to grab people and to actually heal them and to lift them up out of their, out of their misery and out of their sin are these hands now. The things, the, the, the body we have is his and he still works through us. Remember that always. God bless you. Thank you.